Hey everybody, it's Tracy Brown and you're participating in Candid Conversations and wow, this is really just an opportunity to, to be in candid or open, relaxed conversation with individuals and with small groups about what can be done that will see better respect, mutual respect, love, and equity in the world. It's morning here where I am, and my mouth is not working completely, but that's okay, because I'm going to be talking with uh, Reverend Dr. Jim Lockard, and this man is amazing. And it's not morning where he is. He's in Europe, and it's in the middle of the afternoon, so I'm sure his brain and mouth are working better than mine. Jim Locker, I love to use him as my example of a true peace officer. He worked in law enforcement for a large part of his career, where he was an officer of the law. But then he had a second career, or maybe third career, as a peace officer for God, as a minister, allowing people and guiding people to follow the laws of spiritual spirituality. And now I think of him as a peace officer, helping um, people throughout the world find those laws of harmony and to interact in peace. And he may tell you more about it, but he travels the world and he leads tours and he brings all of what he's done in his life together. And I invited Jim to be in this conversation about what's the spiritual imperative for taking action in the world to create more respect or to especially reduce or eliminate race-based hatred and violence. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much, Tracy. It's great to be here. Um, I'm actually in Spain right now, for those that are, that are curious, and um, it's mid-afternoon here, as you said. Um, that's a big question. Uh, I think, and when we look at what's going on, you know, primarily, let's face it, in the Western world. I mean, you know, our, our experience, we're talking about North America, we're talking about Europe, uh, there's very different dynamics going in other parts of the world, like Asia and, and other places. So I, I'm sort of confining my thinking in this regard to what's happening in where most of us live, anyway, that would be watching or participating in this. Right. Uh, North America and Europe, what we would call the industrialized West. Yes. And there's some interesting dynamics unfolding, and I think they have a lot to do with our own evolution as human beings. Um, some people call it a breakdown of society where people are being maybe less polite. Uh, there's name calling. You turn on the news. You turn. You listen to politicians. Um, you know, there's there's just all kinds of of behavior and conversation going on that we might have said 50 years ago would have been completely unheard of. Um, and I think it's important to understand that what that dynamic represents is more of a breaking of some old shackles rather than uh, an end to morality. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm writing a book on leadership, and one of the things I'm trying to convey is that the old authoritarian style of leadership really doesn't work so well anymore because people are evolving past that. People are not willing to take a leader's uh, word blindly for the most part. 
And um, leaders have to be more inclusive. They have to be more understanding of, of where people are coming from. They have to be accountable to other constituencies and things like that. And I think what we're seeing in our politics, what we're seeing in our spirituality is kind of being caught in this big change process that is difficult to understand. And a lot of us just kind of feel like we're trapped in it, that the world is just speeding around, going crazy, uh, out of control, and we don't know what to do. So my ministry today, I guess, since I left pulpit ministry a year, couple, almost two years ago now, is uh, really about writing and blogging and speaking about understanding these evolutionary dynamics. And I'm not talking about biological evolution. I'm talking about cultural evolution. Now, one of the aspects of the cultural evolution that unfolded in the last century was the human rights movement, the civil rights movements, uh, where all of a sudden it seemed um, people of color, women, and other groups were stepping forward and saying, we demand a change. And to a large degree, not certainly not perfectly or completely, the institutions have accommodated that to some extent. Yes. You know, the fact that we have an African-American president in the United States, the fact that a woman is now the, the nominee of a major party. Um, these are things that just simply would not have happened a half century ago. So things are unfolding that way, but there's also a lot of other dynamics that are kind of beneath the surface that are uh, where people feel that change is incomplete, they're impatient, they want things to happen more quickly. And it's sort of like, it's hard to do on here, I'm just gonna to try to make my hands into a little circle. And if you imagine that little oval in my hands, uh, over here is the leading edge and over here is the trailing edge. And as we move forward in time, these two get farther apart. And those people that are kind of naturally open to change, looking for change, are feeling more and more comfortable. And those people that are naturally resistant to change are feeling less and less comfortable. And I think a lot of the dynamics that are showing up in terms of anger, in terms of uh, you know needing to demonize others and label others, like for example, the Black Lives Matter uh, Black Lives Matter movement emerges out of a history of civil rights. It emerges to bring attention to a perceived wrong. And those that are on that kind of trailing edge of cultural evolution that are resisting change see it as a huge threat. They, they want to label them a terrorist organization or something like that because that makes their worldview seem more realistic. So these kinds of dynamics are going on and spiritual leaders, ministers, uh, you know, rabbis, priests, imams are caught in the middle of it in trying to bring ancient spiritual wisdom and principles into a very modern world. How do we do that? How do we, uh, you know, how do we comfort people? How do we guide them? How do we show them that the spiritual principles are still relevant, which I think they are, but I think they have to be expressed in new ways. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that kind of, I just kind of see it as a big unfolding, evolving picture that we're all going to have to be very good at adapting to. And part of that adaptation process is giving people some space to process what's going on. You know, we're so impatient. Once, you know, once somebody becomes enlightened about something, they immediately turn around and criticize the person that may become enlightened next week but hasn't yet. 
Exactly. So one of my my principles I'm living by now as best I can is if somebody is where I used to be, I try to hold them in compassion. Just as I wish someone would have held me in compassion when I was there in terms of a certain attitude or belief that's limiting. Let's let's talk a little bit about that holding in compassion because I agree with you. Um, You know, I can see this evolutionary pattern. I can compare what's happening now to other periods when we were in great turmoil and conflict and then it, you know, moved into the next level. Um, But holding others in compassion is not always easy. Um, And you recently posted some, some tips that people could use, especially in social media, but I think they apply in our own life. And, and I'm not really asking you to like recite that list, but two right. or three suggestions that you have for people that allow them to come from that spiritually grounded place and behave with compassion, even though there's conflict and misunderstanding. Yeah. Well, the focus of that piece, which was in my blog, which is a, a list of affirmations for people in the election season and on social media where there's lots of, you know, yip, 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 yip going on. Um, I think it's really about learning to recognize my own impulses, my own fears and trying to deal with them. And then when I, when I interact with people, I'm coming from a healthier place. So rather than trying to change somebody else, which I don't think we ever have the account. I don't, I'm not responsible for changing anybody's mind. Um, I may be uh, able to give them a gift of planting a seed that they may ultimately work into a new way of seeing the world, but I'm not even responsible for the unfolding of that. I'm just, you know, trying to do the best I can. And I think we get so afraid of, based on our own fears of our worldview, and if so-and-so gets elected or if uh, police are hampered in doing their jobs or if African-Americans are being shot at, at, at these rates, what's, what the outcome is going to be that we want to grab people by the lapel, so to speak, and shake some sense into. Them. And these affirmations are really about how to restrain <laughs> yourself to some extent by, by being, you know, kind of recognizing they're going to, people are going to be where they are. They have a right to be where they are. And my job is to be compassionate toward them. It doesn't mean I have to, it's not about falsely agreeing with them. It's not about any of that. It's about, it's about, I think Michelle Obama said it so well, when someone else goes low, I want to go high. And by high, I mean not to put them down. I mean to be in my own sense of being as loving and compassionate as I can. So that's really what this, to me, that's bringing spiritual principle into the world is, you know, you don't win any arguments with people by telling them they're wrong and calling them names and saying they're stupid or they're unenlightened or they're, you know, in the dark ages or whatever it is. You, you get people's attention when you show them respect. And I think the truth is already within all of us. It just needs to be awakened. Yes. So my role, my role, and, and that's what I've learned in our teaching in, in Science of Mind. I mean, you know, that, that, was a, that was the big aha for me was that I already had it all. Where I was, you know, in my earlier part of my life, I was always looking outside for my answers. And I realized the answers within me, I need to find ways to cultivate its expression. So, so do the people I'm dealing with that I may disagree with. You know, 
on my Facebook page, I have a whole bunch of ex-cop friends who tend to be pretty conservative, not, not uniformly, but pretty. And I have a whole bunch of new thought friends who tend to be pretty liberal. And occasionally under one of my posts, they'll go at each other. And I have to say, um, sometimes it's the, it's the police who are the ones being the most respectful. You know, the, and these are old guys. These are retired cops my, my generation that are the, pretty much all left the active work. And that's kind of disheartening to me that, uh, that you know, my, my spiritually based friends are often so wrapped up in the fear and the energy of discord that they're not able to bring the best part of themselves to bear in situations like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Howard Thurman wrote about the beloved community and really since the civil rights movement, that phrase, the beloved community, all of God's creation, all of God's children, all people are really moving, returning to living together in harmony. Um, and it is disheartening when it's people who are very, who you know, perceive themselves as, and who are really very grounded spiritually in most matters, to come <laughs> forward when it's um, issues related to race or sexual orientation or even mm-hmm. um, the interfaith movement, having judgment about other people with other faith practices. Um, it is really disheartening. So what, what comes yeah. to mind for you? What, what do you have to say to, to us, spiritually grounded people, when we don't even realize we're coming from a place of fear and anger and resentment? And- well, well, I would say the same thing to you. I'd say to myself, we all have areas of uh, where we're not as developed as we would like to be. We all have buttons that can be pushed. And there can be a lot of reasons for that. And the reasons are not as important as the recognition that we're all human. And it's it's about, I know I tend to give myself a break in those circumstances. And I may not give that same break to others. You know, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and and you give them, you know, the the hand gesture that indicates that there's something wrong with them. And you get angry. And you may have just done the same thing yourself a mile back, but you did it because you had a reason. Oh, my hand slipped off the wheel or I was, you know, I was changing the radio and, and then somebody honks at you and you get mad at them. Then somebody does the same thing and you honk at them and you feel completely justified because you've completely forgotten that in the same circumstance, you gave yourself a break. So I think, you know, what I, what I'd like to recognize is that that's something that we all are prone to do in various areas. And I would like to practice giving others the same break the same consideration, the same sense that, oh, I'm not going to assume the worst about you because of that particular thought or behavior or, or, or word, just as I don't, if I say something that I say, well, how'd that come out of my mouth? Well, I know, okay, I forgive myself, uh, you know, which I think is a healthy thing to do. The least I can do is offer the same courtesy to someone else. So I think that's part of it. You know, when you get into these give and takes, you know, if it's with your uncle at, at a family dinner who's got a different political position than you or it's some anybody, it's just trying to hold in consciousness that idea that, you know, this is a this is this is actually the reality is this is God talking to God. 
And can I be the best version of that conversation that I can possibly be at all times? Mm. Uh, what just went through my mind was, you know, thinking about you and talking with you, you, you know, your life now is still a ministry. It's just in different forms. You've been in pulpit ministry. You've been in public ministry, uh, working in law enforcement. Um, and what strikes me is, you know, I, I teach the, the, I'm one of the teachers for the required diversity for ministers class in our spiritual leadership. And um, what, yeah, what advice do you have for those who are in, in ministerial training? Because, you know, they're not necessarily young but they're shaping their way of being a spiritual leader in the world. And what advice do you have for them as they are shaping how they want to walk through these troubling times? Yeah. Before I answer that, I thought something from what you said before about Howard Thurman. Um, the working title of the book I'm writing that I'm just about to get to the editor is called Creating the Beloved Community, a handbook for spiritual leaders. And I think that underlies everything that I, that I would answer to this question is how do I, as a spiritual leader, bring the best of myself? Have I, you know, the, the number one question for me to any spiritual leader is, have you done your own work? Have you done your own spiritual practice? Are you doing your spiritual practices every day? Have you really studied the teaching, the philosophy, the theology of what it is of your faith tradition? And equally important, have you done your psychological work? Have you done your shadow work? Have you done your, your sense of what I would call radical self-examination to really get a sense of, and get a handle on, you know, where am I likely to fly off the handle? Where am I likely to be inappropriate or to be condemning or judgmental? And have I done the work to resolve that issue within myself so that when, so that I can, you know, the most important way we lead is by example. You can say whatever you want from the podium or in class, but if you're out in, if you're you know if you're out in the fellowship hall telling sexist jokes, that says more about you than what anything you would say in a sermon. Or if you're just condoning that behavior by ignoring it, you know. And so, I think that is where, if you will, where the rubber meets the road for spiritual leaders or any kind of leader, really is have you done your own work? Are you a psychologically healthy individual? Are you able to be an example for those that are seeking to be the best version of their own spiritual faith tradition that they can be? Whatever that faith tradition is, I don't think that matters a whole lot. You know, in New Thought, it's more about realizing your own potential, becoming the the taking dominion over your thoughts and feelings to the degree that you can express from your highest and best at any given time, and that highest and best is always a moving target. You're always moving toward an infinite possibility, so you never get there. You're always on your way. But, you know, ideally, the spiritual leader is at least a little bit ahead of the congregation in that regard because you're required to lead that group and teach that group and help them to be their own realization of whatever it is. So my advice to the new ministers would be do your work. Do your personal work when you're by yourself of studying, of practicing, of meditating, of praying, of reading, all those kinds of things so that 
you know, you are able to be fully present in your role as it unfolds, whatever that may be. Great, fabulous. And I'm just like breathing it in. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know that um, part of the reason this whole Candid Conversation series is, has begun is because we've been interacting online in a Facebook group called What I Do, where people are constantly saying and asking themselves, what is mine to do in response to race-based hatred and violence? Although, really, it's not in response to that. It's what is mine to do to create more respect and equity in the world. Like, what is mine to do now to plant the seed for a better world for myself and for others a year from now, a decade from now, a generation from now? And so, um, being online alone wasn't enough, and we wanted to have some of these conversations. Um, and one of the things I'm asking everybody I talk to is how you answer that question right now. What is mine to do? What is it related to forward and supporting equity and fairness and love and respect and all those things you want to say? Well, I just did a blog post on my experience as a law enforcement officer and the idea of white privilege that I'd never heard of until, frankly, until a year or two ago. I never heard the term white privilege. Um, but when I did hear it, it resonated. And um, one of the things I, I think we have to be, be really cognizant of is to, is to speak up when we sense injustice, when we're in a group and the conversation starts to go in a direction that's not productive or not respectful, you have to have the courage to say, I think we want to go in a different direction here. I, I think we need to, and, and you know, some of us are scared to speak up. Some of us don't feel articulate enough to say what we really want to say because we're so concerned with how it will be heard. But I just think we have to do our best to say, let's not go there. Sometimes that's all you need to do because they know people know what they're doing, you know. And the other side of it is is to recognize that, the, as I mentioned before, there are some people that are having trouble keeping up with all this. Yes. And and there are people, you know, in both in I say both in all the different uh, ethnic and racial categories that that uh, are having trouble with the pace of change, which expected of them to know. Uh, a lot of things I hear and, you know, you read it on media and stuff about the older white males like me, all right, is um, we feel like we're always wrong no matter what we do. And, we're, and now we're wrong. We were wrong 300 years ago. So let's take all the statues down. And that's hard to absorb, you know. So how do you, how do you, uh, Dr. Roger Teal gave me this phrase and I've used it many, many times. How do we hospice what needs to die and midwife what needs to be born? How do we help people transition through the uncomfortable phase of coming to a new worldview that's more inclusive? Because it, it, although it sounds obvious to a lot of people that maybe have gotten there or aspire to be there, it's not an easy thing for most people to do. 
So I think that's where another place where compassion comes in. Is there a compassionate way to guide people toward a, an appreciation of diversity and the, the step beyond diversity, which is true inclusion? Is there, is there a compassionate way without make, needing to make people feel bad about the past or because, you know, although there may be justification in feeling bad about the past, it may not be productive in helping people to move to where they need to move. So, it, it, and, and there's nothing, to me, there's nothing really easy about it. I think it requires a lot of conscious attention. It requires a lot of prayer and meditation. It requires a lot of study. And it requires a lot of willingness to be open. And again, there are people, going back to this little symbol, there are people that are really willing to be open and there are people that just aren't. And um, you have to meet folks where they are if you want to entice and invite them into a new way of being. I so agree. mine to do is to be as clear and, art and articulate a spokesperson and to not let things slide that by, by, because it's more comfortable to stay quiet, but to speak to it as tactfully and clearly as I can. One of the things I love about you, Jim Lockard, is that you um, actually model that. Like you, you, you are an example, and it's not about being perfect. It's about you know consistently moving forward. Um, so I really, really appreciate. I was going to say your advice, but it's not even advice. It's just the sharing of what's possible and what might help us all move forward. Um, Ray yeah. Ellis posted in the chat a fabulous Malcolm X quote that just mirrors what something that you said earlier. Don't be in a hurry to condemn because he doesn't do what you do or think as you think or as fast. There was a time when you didn't know what you know today, Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. so, so often people don't, don't realize that it's not just always about being on the attack. It's about partnering together and meeting people where they are, as you said. Exactly. And I would just add to that, that a lot of the need to be on the attack comes from having not done our own inner work that we're still in our woundedness. We're still in our sense of not enough, our sense of lack and limitation. And we lash out at anyone who reminds us of that. Mm. And, and we think it's them. But if we were, if we had done our work about that and worked on our healing process, we would much more likely to see the other person as a fellow traveler on the path who maybe could use some enlightening as opposed to someone that needed to be defeated. I love that phrase, a fellow traveler on the path. I'm so glad that I am a fellow traveler on the same path with you, Jim Locker. And I am with you because you're doing amazing work in the world. I think it's wonderful. 30 minutes goes by so fast. So yeah. I just want to invite everyone who sees this video to join us on, in the Facebook group, What is Mine to Do? You can also go to the website, whatismindtodo.com, and get a link to the Facebook group if that's helpful. 
um, and join us. Ask your questions, make your comments, post articles that help all of us become fellow travelers on this road toward a world that works for everyone. That's all the time we have, Jim. Thanks so much, um, and I'll see you on Facebook. Okay, fantastic. Take care. Thank you very much. Goodbye, Goodbye Rashid. Goodbye, Rafe. <laughs>